I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Blessed indeed are we when we take refuge in the Lord our God. Let us ask for his help, taking refuge in him even for the worship to which he has called us. And we'll, uh, we'll close our silent prayer by praying together. Let's pray. Father, you know the hearts of your people. You know the comfort that we need, the peace that we crave. We pray, Father, that you would speak to each one of us, that you would enlighten us and guide us and prepare us for service, and that you would cause us to respond in a way that brings honor to your holy name. In Jesus' name we pray it, amen. Let's stand together. Beloved, our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Hear now his greeting. To you who are called, sanctified by God the Father and preserved through Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Amen. Let's sing praise together to the Lord from Psalm 34a in our Trinity Psalter hymnal. 34a stands as 1, 2, 3, and 7.
No one who trusts in God the Lord will ever be overthrown. And he calls us to express our trust in him by confessing what he has revealed concerning himself and his, his uh, influence upon our lives, upon our world. We do that this evening with the words of the Apostles' Creed. Congregation of our Lord, in whom do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe a holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Our psalm selection this evening is from Psalm 119, uh, beginning in verse 65, going through verse 80. What we find here, you know, all of this psalm extols the law of God. But this first section is a plea for help in learning the law of God, which brings knowledge, which builds up God's servant and which sets us apart, he points out, from those who scorn the wisdom and the knowledge of God. And then there's a plea for understanding and comfort that he might live and that he might draw others to the Lord and be blameless in God's sight. In other words, this is a plea that God would help us to gain the knowledge that we need to live well before him. Right? It's good for us to remember that. We... Uh, I think in our tradition, we have a high view of learning, a high view of understanding the things of God, the things of the world even. But we need to remember that the knowledge of God and of his word is not something we attain merely by diligence. Only God can enable us to understand it fully, to understand it the way it needs to be understood and apply it to our lives. And when we receive that, it does set us apart. There are multitudes of folks who know this word well, but who don't know the one it reveals. And so there, there, there are scholars concerning the words 
But they're utter fools when it comes to what those words mean. They spend their lives, they spend their existence deconstructing and nullifying the truth of God's word. There are others who spend their lives, devote themselves to nullifying the reality of God that that He reveals in the world around us. And that's what we all would do apart from the power of God applying the truth of His Word, the wisdom of His understanding to our hearts. We need to rely on Him for all that we have, for all that we need. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling, like fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice, because I have hoped in your word. I know, O Lord that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. Let your mercy come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. Let the insolent be put to shame because they have wronged me with falsehood. As for me, I will meditate on your precepts. Let those who fear you turn to me that they may know your testimonies. May my heart be blameless in your statutes, that I may not be put to shame. Amen. Let's pray together. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, You are the source and the originator of all true and right and good. Indeed, there is nothing that exists apart from You. And there is nothing that we can rightly understand apart from your word and spirit. Father, we confess with the psalmist that we need your blessing. If we are to understand this world, if we are to understand ourselves, if we are to understand history apart or in a, in a way that is true and helpful. Lord, we're surrounded by those who reject your truth. We see them in government. We see them in society. Calling out with lies. Mocking and scorning and belittling those who dare to trust in your truth and to uphold your statutes. And yet we know that in the end, they will bow the knee and acknowledge the falsehood that they have taught but it will be too late for them. Father, preserve us from them and from their ways. Teach us to hold fast to your word and to believe your truth 
cause our children and our children's children to delight in your word, to cherish your ways, and to refuse to doubt the truth that you have revealed. Father, we pray that you would make that truth our delight. So that no matter what is said around us or about us, no matter how we are scorned or mocked or slandered, we might hold fast to this unshakable reality of your word. For Father, you are the one who has redeemed us. You are the one who has given us hope. And there is no hope apart from you. There is no truth, no life, no future that we can have without your blessing. Father, we thank you for bringing us into that truth. For giving us access to life through your word and spirit. For knitting us together with the saints by whom we are encouraged and built up and when necessary admonished and drawn back into your fold. Lord, grant that we might always see the blessing of that body. The blessing of of your church. And we pray that you would continue to preserve and build up your people. You have put so many different gifts and perspectives in our midst. And we know that that mix of gifts has been from your wisdom. Help each one of us to use our gifts, to use our blessings in a way that blesses the church as a whole. And grant that not one might feel unworthy or unhelpful. Father, we pray that you would continue to meet the needs of your people. You have weighed down so many with trials and afflictions. But as the psalmist confessed, so do we. Affliction has been for our benefit that we have learned to trust in you and to believe your promises and to find our hope and our strength truly in your hand. Father, we pray that you would bless those who are struggling. Please watch over Dan as he undergoes his new cancer treatment. Grant that it might be effective for him and that, that he might be able to tolerate these treatments. Bless Jamie in her upcoming surgery as well as in her ongoing chemotherapy. We ask that you would not only keep her physically safe and well, but but would give her confidence and peace with these procedures. We pray for Joel Mulder as, as he has been able to begin taking his chemotherapy again. We ask that you would make that to be effective and minimize the side effects. We pray for Bruce as he has been undergoing chemotherapy and and experiencing quite a bit of fatigue through it. We ask that you would strengthen and encourage him and that you would bless both him and Linda as Linda recovers from surgery and as together they support and build one another up. We pray for Bob as he is awaiting test results from his radiation and chemotherapy. We ask that you would... Uh, would bless him through that and provide good news. And we pray for, um, for Keith Osterhaven as he is dealing with the dizziness that he had this morning and, and with some other medical issues. Lord, we ask that you would bless 
uh, him and Lori as well. And Lord, there are so many others. Members among us who deal with ongoing pain and heart issues. Those who wrestle with depression and anxiety. Those who struggle with questions of their faith and with doubts and fears. Others who have strife in their lives or or heartache over the path that loved ones have taken. Some who wrestle with their sins and feel like they're overpowered by them. And others, others who just don't know where to turn, who feel alone. Lord, you know our hearts better than we do. You know our lives and all of their challenges. We pray that you would work in the midst of these afflictions and trials and that you would use them to build us up and strengthen us in the, in the gospel. We pray for our loved ones who are dealing with various health issues. Lord, thank you for hearing so many prayers for Barrett and uh, allowing him to return home quickly after his procedure. Pray for continued healing for him, likewise for Jim as he uh, recovers from his bone marrow transplant, for Gary and for Mary as, uh, as Gary recovers from surgery and as Mary deals with the effects of uh, dementia, for Larry's son Dan as he recovers from his uh, heart issues and, and seeks the comfort of the gospel. And others, Lord, we pray for your blessing and help upon each one. And we pray that you would continue to use us to gather in those who've not yet heard, to disciple those who've heard and newly come, to build up and strengthen one another in the midst of the trials and upheaval of life, to weep with those who weep and Celebrate with those who rejoice. And Father, we pray that that you would cause none of us to take lightly the gift of the gospel that you have given to us and the blessing of being part of the body of Christ. Father, we pray for your church throughout the world. There are so many who worship you under the threat of violence We pray that you would preserve and encourage your church. That you would keep them physically safe, but also that you would make them to be fearless and bold in proclaiming the comfort of Christ that sustains them. We pray for Brother Koskin in Turkey as he ministers in the midst of many who have lost much through earthquake and the related disasters. We ask that you would continue to use him and the saints there in Izmir to minister to those who are grieving and those who've endured much loss and who know so much uncertainty concerning the future. Grant that they might bring the word of true certainty of life and hope and strength. And Lord, continue to spread your gospel and your truth throughout Turkey and Syria, throughout Asia Minor and the Middle East and Africa and Europe. 
Lord, there are multitudes who languish in unbelief and hopelessness and false religion. But there is no hope in false religion. There is no hope in man or the inventions of men. So we pray that you would show them the misery and the emptiness of trusting in the ways of men and that you would send forth your church with great power to proclaim the truth, to draw in those who, whom you have set apart for your kingdom. And now, Lord, to that end, equip us by your word that we might appreciate and understand how you build your kingdom, both drawing in and building up your saints, that we might rejoice in what you have done and take part wholeheartedly in it. We pray that you would use your word to draw us closer to you and that you would use that same word and the ministry of the saints in our midst to mature us and disciple us that more and more we might bring you honor. Now, Father, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hmm. Just realized we didn't sing after reading the psalm. Um, let's sing the, the second half of the psalm that we read. Uh, number 245 in our Psalter hymnal. Number 245, Thou who didst make and fashion me. What the psalmist there speaks 
is a prayer that God answers in part through the keys of the kingdom. And that's what we're going to consider this evening in our catechism in Lord's Day 31. But, but first I'd like to read with you from Matthew 18. The keys of the kingdom are what we refer to, or are how we refer to uh, preaching and Christian discipline, which are meant to draw people into the kingdom and then to disciple them there. And Matthew 18 speaks of this. We often turn to Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17, when we're talking about church discipline. How do we... How do we confront someone in their sin? How do we deal with it when they're not willing to acknowledge their sin and turn from it? But it's helpful to recognize that that brief instruction doesn't come in a vacuum. It actually comes in the context of Christ reminding us of its purpose, which is to draw back those who are straying. And then afterward... Well, the disciples heard that instruction. They realized it was going to be hard. It was going to be rather difficult to do this discipline thing. It's difficult to confront someone in their sin. It's also difficult when they repent and you have to forgive them. And so he told a parable to help them put that in context for themselves. Now, as we read this um, in the ESV, our Pew Bible, if you... Read carefully, you'll notice that we go from verse 10 to verse 12. Um, There's a particular translation philosophy that regards older manuscripts as inherently better. I don't believe that's necessarily the case. Um, As a result, they skipped over verse 11. I'm going to insert that because I do believe it's original. Um, So that's why you'll see me go off script for just a minute there. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother." But if he does not listen, take, two, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. 
Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Amen. Lord's Day 31 asks us, what are the keys of the kingdom? And the answer is the preaching of the Holy Gospel and Christian discipline toward repentance. Both of them open the kingdom of heaven to believers and close it to unbelievers. How does the preaching of the Holy Gospel open and close the kingdom of heaven? According to the command of Christ, the kingdom of heaven is opened by proclaiming and publicly declaring to all believers, each and every one, that as often as they accept the gospel promise in true faith, God, because of Christ's merit, truly forgives all their sins. The kingdom of heaven is closed, however, by proclaiming and publicly declaring to unbelievers and hypocrites that as long as they do not repent, the wrath of God and eternal condemnation rest on them. God's judgment, both in this life and in the life to come, is based on this gospel testimony. Well, how is the kingdom of heaven closed and opened by Christian discipline? According to the command of Christ, those who, though called Christians, profess unchristian teachings or live unchristian lives, and who, after repeated personal and loving admonitions, refuse to abandon their errors and evil ways, and who, after being reported to the church, that is, to those ordained by the church for that purpose, fail to respond also to the church's admonitions, such persons the church excludes from the Christian community by withholding the sacraments from them. And God also excludes them from the kingdom of Christ. Such persons, when promising and demonstrating genuine reform, are received again as members of Christ and of his church. Amen. Beloved disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ, what we read in Lord's Day 31 is... (laughs) Not popular. What's popular in modern evangelical Christendom is a seeker-sensitive approach. A seeker-sensitive approach 
aims to welcome people into the church and into the kingdom by winsomeness, by removing every obstacle. Find out what kind of music appeals to them and use that kind of music. Find out what kind of presentation of the gospel will resonate with them and present the gospel in that way. Tailor your messages to the felt needs of people in our society in this age. Don't offend them, but comfort them into the kingdom. Encourage them into the kingdom. Walk them right in by saying the things that they long to hear, doing the things that they long to have you do. Problem is, that's not what we find in Scripture in terms of instruction for how we bring people into the kingdom. What we find in Scripture doesn't say anything about praise bands or liturgical dance or theater seating or special conferences. I didn't say anything about that. What we find in Scripture about building the kingdom is a command to love and cherish the truth of God's Word. To proclaim that truth in all of its fullness with boldness and without compromise. To entrust that proclamation to men prepared and equipped for doing that work. And then for applying that truth to the whole of the life of God's people. And when they reject it, when they refuse, going out and drawing them back with encouragement to be sure, but also with admonition. And all of that is hard. It's not, it's not winsome. But that's okay. Because although it's hard, and, because, and although it's countercultural, when God uses it as He does... To draw people, not just into the church, but into the kingdom and into eternal life. When God uses that hard instruction and those sometimes hard truths, it's evident that this was not done on the basis of the wisdom of men, that this was not done by the power and the persuasiveness of the very weak and flawed men who stand before them, that this was done by the power and by the wisdom of God. It is He who builds His kingdom. He is the one who draws in his elect. He is the one who seeks after his sheep and he does it in his way, not ours. And that's why Lord's Day 31 is very good news. Because if you're relying on the wisdom of men to get people into the kingdom, that is torture. I know folks in those churches. It is a never-ending battle to please everyone and to not offend anyone. And that's impossible. And as soon as you upset somebody, well, they're gone. And not just them, but all of their constituents, all of the people that they've gathered around themselves. And it's this constant battle between men and the desires of men and the hopes of men. And and that's 
You notice what's not theirs. The focus on God. And so God has given us instruction in his word that takes the focus off men. Takes the focus off our desires and our wants and our preferences and us. And it puts the focus on Christ. Who is our king, who is our savior, who is our chief shepherd. Who loves his people, who came to seek and to save that which was lost. And who is not satisfied to see even one of the lambs go astray. And so he's given these devices, these instruments, these keys of the kingdom to gather and to disciple and to hold those who have been entrusted to him. Our king entrusts to his church keys that open and close the kingdom. That's what Lord's Day 31 shows us. Our king entrusts to the church keys that open and that close his kingdom. And the first of these is preaching, the key that urges hearers to walk in the way of faith. Now, preaching, have you ever tried to define what that is? There's a sense in which it's one of those things that you sort of know it when you see it. But if we were to try to carefully define exactly what it is, we might say that preaching is the authoritative proclamation of God's truth, by one who is lawfully called and ordained, declaring the coming of the kingdom of God in Christ, proclaiming Christ's salvation and lordship. Let me unpack that a minute. Preaching is the proclamation of God's truth. It's not the proclamation of the wisdom of men or the opinions of men or the insights of men. It's the proclamation of the truth that God has revealed to us, period, end of sentence. It's done by those whom God has called to that end. Now, in some sense, we are all called to preach, lowercase p, in that we're all called to testify to what the Lord has done for us and what the Lord has done, period. We're all called to confess Christ. But preaching is uniquely set apart as a means by which, as we'll see in a minute, by which God gathers his people imparts faith into their hearts, builds his kingdom. And that is done by men who have been set apart and ordained to that task. When they come proclaiming God's truth, they're proclaiming the kingdom of God which Christ has accomplished, which Christ has instituted. And in proclaiming that kingdom, they're proclaiming salvation for all who will trust in Christ. Salvation that is utterly free. Salvation that they do not need at all to work for or to earn. But salvation which, when it comes to someone, demands everything of them. Because Christ comes not only as Savior, but as King. He he wants to direct not just our eternal life, but our earthly life. Not just our spiritual life, but our secular life. He wants to have authority over all of it. That's the essence of what preaching is. And and it's folly in the eyes of men. I mean, you talk about outdated. It's all based in writings that are at minimum 2,000 years old. It's all about resurrection and morality and judgment. People don't care about that stuff anymore, the experts tell us. And moreover, it's judgy. I mean, it talks about... 
unchanging truth and an unchanging God and it commands us to conform ourselves to his commands and and if we don't which we won't it says that we're we're going to be judged for that unless we submit ourselves to a savior inflexible not winsome and beyond that in terms of communication style it doesn't get much more unwise one guy standing in front of people without visual aids or multimedia that's like the most ineffective communication style you could come up with in the eyes of men it is folly both in form and in content but it is essential according to the teaching of scripture but to see that we need to start with the basics and that's the gospel that lies at the heart of preaching romans 1 Verses 16 and 17 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That is the message that stands right at the core of faithful preaching of the gospel. The message that brings salvation through Christ, by faith, period. Which reveals to us, which brings to us the righteousness of God in Christ and which saves men from every sin, which delivers them from that which would destroy them. That is at the heart of what we are called to preach. And those who hear are commanded to believe. Romans 10 verse 10. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This unpopular message of the gospel must be received by hearts that believe that it is true and that it is for me. But if that's to happen, Paul says, there must be preaching. How will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? That is why preaching is so very powerful and so very necessary. You see, as much as we know and understand inherently, and there's much that we know inherently, from the world around us, from the conscience within us, we know that God exists, that he created us and all things. That he is exceptionally wise and holy and good. That we must answer to him at some point. That there is a, a morality. That some things are true and some false. Some are right and some wrong. And that we will answer for how we deal with that morality. We know that inherently. But what we don't know inherently is how we can be forgiven for, for rebelling against this God. How we can be reconciled and have peace with this God. How we can fulfill the purpose for which we were made. The world won't tell us that. Our conscience doesn't inherently know that. And it is preaching that God has designed to show us the answer to those essential questions. So faith comes from hearing, Paul says, and hearing through the word of Christ. And that word is the word preached. God uses the word rightly preached To open for his people the heavenly kingdom. That's why Jesus came. When he came, 
Matthew 4 verse 17 tells us, He came preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He came preaching about the coming of the kingdom that He came to establish. Urging people to believe Him, to repent of their sin, and to enter the kingdom by trusting in Him. Because men naturally in their sin are cut off from God and His kingdom. Therefore, He tells us, the Son of Man came to save that which was lost. It was the will of God the Father that all of those whom He chose should enter that kingdom. Though they were scattered like sheep out in the wilderness, through the preaching of Christ and His kingdom, they would be gathered in, every one of them, into the fold. Delivered from the slaughter that awaited them by the shepherd who was willing to die for them. And they came, John 10, they continue to come by hearing the voice of the shepherd. That's what they hear in preaching. The elect hear the voice of the shepherd. They hear the voice of Christ and they come to that voice. That's what preaching is. When we declare... For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. When we declare that, God sends His Spirit to transform the hearts of those who are His. He uses that word proclaimed, that gospel proclaimed, to soften hearts that were hardened in sin. To draw them to a desire for something more, something better, something true. And then by the preaching of the Word and by the Spirit of Christ, He imparts the faith that unites us to the Savior. Now, I don't do that. The elders don't accomplish that. That's the work of the Holy Spirit through this key of the kingdom called preaching. And because of what he does through preaching, men and women are drawn out of the world and into the kingdom of Christ. Men and women are drawn out of darkness into the light. Men and women are drawn out of death into eternal life. For all who will believe, the preaching of the word opens the kingdom and invites them in. But for those who refuse to believe, and there are those. Romans 10 shows us that Preaching is essential for those who would come to know Christ, for those who would enter the kingdom. But it also says, they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord who has believed what he heard from us. And then in verse 18, their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world. And then in verse 21 of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. In other words, there are folks who hear the gospel consistently, frequently, and they reject it. They sit under the preaching of the word and it makes no difference to their heart. The words just bounce off like rain off a slate of granite. But that doesn't mean that the word is having no effect. The word of God will always, when it is preached, have effect. It will either soften us and draw us to Christ by faith or it will harden us in our unbelief and rebellion. But either way, we will respond to it. 
When the word of God is preached to us faithfully, we will respond. We will either bow the knee before Christ, entering more and more fully into the kingdom, submitting ourselves more and more truly to the king, or we will resolve more and more fervently to hate him, to reject him, to walk away from him. But understand there is a cost to that. Jesus spoke to the Jewish leaders who were rejecting him in Matthew 12. And he said, The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the word is proclaimed to us, that brings a responsibility that we respond with faith, that we respond with trust in Christ. And if we don't, we have to answer for that. So let us pray fervently that God will use the preaching of His Word here week after week, month after month to soften hearts that are hard, to impart faith to hearts that are filled with unbelief, to draw people into the kingdom and to establish them more and more firmly under the sovereign reign of Christ. Because only He can do it. I can implore you, and I do, believe the gospel, trust in Christ, submit yourself to Him. But at the end of the day, it is only God who can cause us to do so. But it's our calling to ask. So let us pray fervently that God would cause the ministry of the word, the preaching of the gospel to be received with faith, with belief, with confidence that those who hear might enter into that kingdom and the eternal life which it holds. However, there is another key, and it's a key that, that is used uniquely on, exclusively on those who already are within the church. By outward appearances, they are within the kingdom. And that's the key of discipline. A key that warns here is to forsake the way of rebellion. Discipline is a tool that God uses for those who stray. We heard Jesus speaking of this How our God, our Father, He loves His sheep. And when one little lamb goes astray, He leaves the 99. He goes in search of that one. He doesn't just just say, well, what's one? It's just one. No big deal. We'll just write that one off. No. He leaves those 99. And the warmth of the fire and the, the comfort of the green pasture where he's brought them and he goes out into the wilderness into the danger, into the difficulty into the darkness and he seeks after that one and when he finds it he rejoices how do they stray? they stray when they begin embracing lies rather than the truth it's not just about active sin it's about what we believe certainly that's true if you embrace an obvious heresy, right? Begin following Mormon or Jehovah's Witnesses or Islam beliefs. But it's more than that. When you start believing that I can make my own truth, when you start believing that I have the right to judge 
what parts of that word I believe. When you embrace the false belief that what I do, how I behave outside of these walls doesn't matter, that's a false belief that involves straying from the chief shepherd. And also when we embrace rebellious behavior. We break the Sabbath. We refuse to submit to those over us. We embrace hatred and and harm toward those around us. We engage in adulterous behavior. We steal. We lie. It's rebellion. It's violations of the, the Ten Commandments, of the two great commandments, to love God himself with all that we are and those made in his image as we love ourselves. When we do that, we stray. In 1 Corinthians 6, we're told that those who embrace these kinds of behavior, these sinful behaviors and beliefs, they have no part in Christ. They have no part in life. There's only life within the flock, within the kingdom. And when we embrace those, now not to say that that we can expect that we won't sin. We all sin. But there's a difference between falling into a sin and embracing that sin, not fighting against it, not denying it, but living in it. And when you decide to live in it, to own it, you've left the flock. You've walked out of the kingdom. The Son of Man came to save that which was lost. And he says, It is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. And so he has instituted this key to bring them back. Doing it is relatively straightforward, but daunting. It starts with one person. In verse 15, he speaks of one who has been sinned against. Elsewhere, he talks about how this same approach is to be used by one who isn't directly sinned against, but he witnesses the sin. You see your brother entering into this sin. You see your sister embracing this sinful attitude or belief. You go. You go alone. That's even harder. But you go alone because you might have misunderstood what you saw. And by going alone, you leave opportunity for a better understanding. You go alone to minimize pride. So that the person will be less likely to dig in their heels and defend themselves and can humble themselves in repentance. You go and you point out their sin based on what you saw and based on God's word. And you call on them to repent. And if they do, what does Jesus say in verse 15? If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. You've gained him. Forgive him. What's that mean? We talk about forgiveness all the time. Do we know what it is? When you forgive your brother, you make a promise to him. Not forgive and forget. Try to forget something. You won't do it, right? But to not remember. God promises to not remember our sins. That's an active thing. I promise not to 
treat you as though you sinned against me. I promise not to tell others or to mention to you this sin. I promise not even to raise it in my own heart. That's a hard promise to keep. But it's essential because that's how God forgives us. But what if he won't? He won't repent. He defends himself. He digs in his heels. No, this is what I want to do. Well, then he says, you take one or two others. They're witnesses. They're witnesses, if necessary, to tell the elders later on how you came. That you came with love. That you came with clarity. That you came trying to draw the person back. Not being manipulative, but being truthful. But they also serve another purpose, don't they? You come alone, they might, that person might cherish the hope. This will blow over. It's no big deal. But now you come with friends. It's not blowing over. It's not going away. And if that is enough to make him repent, then praise the Lord, forgive him, it stops right there. But if not, then you take it to the church, that is to the elders. And they're going to do the same thing. They're going to go and they're going to bring God's word and they're going to show him why he must repent. Why as long as he continues embracing this sin, he is outside of Christ. He has no hope of heaven. And if that doesn't turn him, they're going to raise the stakes. They're going to cut him off from the sacraments. That's hard, isn't it? It Sounds harsh. But understand, it's done in love. What Jesus says in verses 18 to 20, he says, um, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The best translation of that is awkward, to be honest. But it's, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. When the elders act... On the basis of what they see about this person's sin, they see him digging his heels in, insisting on living in this sin. And they say, you're not welcome to partake of the sacrament because you have set yourself outside of Christ. You've demonstrated that you don't have faith in him. When they make that judgment, they're actually reflecting the judgment that's already been spoken in heaven. Christ has already said, This person living in this sin has no part in me. And they're just making it clear to him. That's loving. It's removing the blinders. It's it's revealing the lie that the person has been believing. And if that doesn't work, they're going to widen the circle again. They're going to involve the church. First of all, asking the church to pray for an unnamed person who has involved himself in this sin. And if that doesn't bring about repentance, then they're going to name the person. Not to manipulate him, not to shame him, but to allow them to go, to plead, to urge, turn back. Because it's that important. We can't have Christ and our rebellion. And as long as we're choosing our rebellion, we're choosing not to have Christ. 
And if that means that we have to call the whole church to beg them to turn back, then that's what we have to do. Because the next step is to publicly acknowledge they have no part in Christ. They're not part of the kingdom. Jesus says treat them like a Gentile or a tax collector. Does that mean that we hate them? No. Does that mean we gossip about them? Absolutely not. But it does mean that we recognize they're outside the kingdom. And we need to evangelize them. And that they're not of us. We can't have the intimacy with them that we long for because our heart commitment is different. We're committed to Christ. We serve the king. They serve the flesh. They're outside of Christ. But please understand why we do this. We don't do it because we're offended by them. We don't do it because we're trying to manipulate them into compliance. No, no, no. Three reasons that we do this. The first and the overwhelming one is for the glory of God. In embracing sin, they have rejected Christ. But Christ came to gather those lambs, He came to disciple the nations. And when through the personal pleading and urging and prayers of an individual they're brought back, how can that not glorify God? We do it also for the protection of the church. In 1 Corinthians 5, explaining a particular instance of, the, of church discipline, Paul, says, Paul reminds the church a little leaven leavens the whole lump. In other words, if we turn a blind eye to the sin that is happening in our midst, we're implicitly telling the church, that's okay. Go ahead and live in sin. You can have your rebellion and the Redeemer at the same time. It's a lie. But it will spread throughout the church. So for the protection of the church, for the well-being of the church, we have to do this. We have to show that there's a consequence for sin and that you must turn back. But then ultimately, our longing, our prayer, our labors are for the repentance and the return of the sinner. That's our longing. And if that happens right in the midst of it, praise the Lord, that's such a wonderful thing. But if it doesn't, if it happens 10 years, 20 years down the road, their conscience finally has suffered enough because of their excommunication and they come back and they repent, then we should celebrate. We should have a party because what was lost has been found. Now we're running short on time, but I, I've got to mention, I said this is not popular. And there are reasons for that. From a church level, it's not popular because it's hard. You have no idea how much time elders spend on a single case of discipline. It's not just the visits which are hard, which keep them up at night, which give them heartburn. But it's the hours in prayer. It's the hours in studying God's Word and applying it to this particular case. It's the hours of talking it over together so that they will be united in the way that they seek after this straying sheep. It's hard. 
And what makes it even harder is knowing that no matter how loving, no matter how caring, no matter how pure their intention, not only will that straying person likely have some hard things to say to them, but they will be second-guessed. They will be second-guessed certainly by the community. Oh, they're such hypocrites. Oh, they're so... We can expect that, but they're second-guessed by the church. They know there will be people in the church who say, you, you did it way too quick, or no, you waited way too long. Guaranteed. Satan doesn't miss an opportunity. Which means we need to support our elders. We need to believe that they are struggling with every discipline case that comes before them. And we need to pray that they would have the fortitude and the strength and the wisdom to deal faithfully and well with them. But discipline is also not done because of us in the pew. It's hard to go and confront your brother or your sister in their sin. It's hard because they know you. They know that you're a sinner. And you don't want to feel like a hypocrite. And it's hard. Because quite frankly, sometimes we... We don't really want them to repent. So if they repent, then I've got to forgive them. And like Jonah fuming over Nineveh, we kind of like that bitter fruit of righteous anger we don't have time to deal with this parable but that's your assignment for this week is read that parable carefully because you see that's what motivates us to do that hard work of praying for our brother or our sister who is straying and going to that brother or sister in love with compassion and pleading for them to turn back is recognizing what we've been forgiven of. This servant who owed 10,000 talents to his master, a talent was about 6,000 denarii. A denarius was a workman's average day wage. Put it in modern money, A talent was about 20 years' wages. 10,000 talents, 4.8 billion, give or take. Be patient with me, I'll pay it all. No, you won't. There are nations that don't have GDPs that big. But that's our sin, isn't it? That's what God has forgiven us a debt that is so unfathomably large that we can't even wrap our heads around it but then he goes out and he finds a servant who owes him and it's not a pittance it's probably ten thousand dollars but in comparison ten thousand four point eight billion it's nothing and yet he's desperate for that money he's unwilling to forgive that tiny little amount Is that not us when we're not willing to forgive that slight offense? 
And when we realize how greatly we have been blessed, how immensely we have been forgiven, can we sit at home in the comfort of the knowledge of our salvation while we know that this brother, that this sister, that this friend is living in darkness, is living in death, is outside the kingdom, can we dare not go to them? That's your assignment. And meanwhile, let us rejoice that God sent His Son to rescue those who were straying, which was us. That He uses these keys effectively to draw us in and to rescue us when we stray. And let us pray that He would continue to do so powerfully, effectively here. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You are so faithful to us. That You are generous in Your outpouring of grace. May we... Use these keys with confidence that you will work through them. With gratitude that you use them to draw us into life and eternal life. And with joy that we have been, by, these, by the use of these keys, brought into communion with you. Strengthen our elders our pastor, as they employ these keys and enable us, Lord, to use them well in hearing the word proclaimed, in exercising discipline among ourselves, that you might be glorified, that the church might be preserved, that the straying lamb might be brought back. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. Beloved, in response, recognizing that it is Christ who restores us, let us stand and sing together number 417, number 417, Savior, like a shepherd, lead us. And we're going to sing the first three stanzas, the first three.
Our offering this evening is for the Classes Church Plant Fund. This is a fund that is intended to be used for establishing new churches within the bounds of Classes, Michigan. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have blessed us so richly. Receive now these gifts that we bring as a token of our thanks. And we pray that you would use the monies collected for the church plant fund to establish new congregations that will proclaim your truth faithfully, disciple your people well, and spread the kingdom that your son died to establish. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Our offering song this evening is number 400, Shout for the Blessed Jesus Reigns. Number 400.
The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.